Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Russia expected to capture Kyiv within the first week of the war, and we saw a sort of triumphant uh, attitude on Russian state TV in the first days. They got marred down in a fierce fighting with Ukrainian soldiers for weeks. Evan Gershkovich, 31 years old, an American citizen with Russian heritage. He works for the Wall Street Journal in Moscow. When Russia invaded Ukraine in February last year, he was there on the front line reporting. His colleagues will tell you just how passionate he is about telling unheard stories. In the early days of the conflict, Evan got himself into Belarus and down to the border with Ukraine, where he was able to watch Russian soldiers who'd been fighting coming back over the border to be treated. He was the only Western reporter in that location able to get that story. And that was a huge exclusive and really gave a kind of new insight to the readers about what was happening on the Russian side. But almost two weeks ago, Evan became the story. Russia's security agency says it has arrested a U.S. journalist working for the Wall Street Journal in Moscow on charges of espionage. Russian intelligence agents arrested Evan Gershkovich as he reported 900 miles east of Moscow. Evan was doing what reporters do and what he did very well. He was out there gathering news, talking to people, reporting, providing an eyewitness account of what's going on inside Russia. It's ludicrous. I mean, Evan is a journalist, an extraordinary journalist, probably one of the top American journalists of his generation. And it's just outrageous that while doing his job and simply reporting, he was arrested. It's the first time since the Cold War, back in 1986, that Russia has arrested an American journalist on espionage charges. And this changes a lot of things. In my own mind, there's no doubt that he's being wrongfully detained uh, by Russia. This espionage charges are ridiculous. The targeting of American citizens by Russian government is unacceptable. We condemn the detention of Mr. Gerskovich in the strongest, in the strongest terms. What is Vladimir Putin up to? arresting an innocent journalist for doing his job. And what impact will this have on those in Russia trying to challenge the government? Putinism is a man who just doesn't respect any rules, any norms, any boundaries. And this is a, a particularly important boundary. It's, it's like the International Red Cross. When you're wearing a press jacket, you should be immune. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, Evan Gerskovich's wrongful detention in Russia. What's it like being an international journalist in Russia under that very watchful gaze of the Kremlin? There's no one better to ask than Mark Bennett. He was in Moscow for The Times and The Sunday Times since 2015, where he first met Evan Gerskovich. Mark left Russia not long after the Ukraine war began, fearing for his safety. Hello, my name is Mark Bennett. I'm a foreign correspondent for The Times. When did you find out about Evan's arrest, Mark? 
I found out, like pretty much everyone else, on Thursday morning when the news broke. The Kremlin this morning is saying that the journalist, Evan Gershkovich, was, quote, caught red-handed. Russia's top security agency, the FSB, is accusing Gershkovich of collecting state secrets for the U.S. government. They say they detained him. Found out minutes before the plane I was on, which I was traveling to Switzerland to interview a Russian writer, just before the plane took off, I received news that he'd been arrested. So, of course, for the entire flight, which is like an hour and a half, I was kind of difficult to think of anything else. I mean, mm. beyond the fact that I know Evan and I was worried about him and the implications for everyone who was left reporting in Russia are massive as well. But obviously, I mean, the overriding concern was about Evan. And was your overriding emotion shock or, or I guess I would, part of you, did you think this was going to happen at some point with someone? Yeah, I thought it was going to happen. I was, to be honest, I was surprised it hadn't happened already. I mean, I think now that there are basically no relations between Russia and the West. So I think arresting a Western journalist was inevitable once once Russia reverted to Soviet Cold War type politics. Tell us a bit about Evan. You've met him many times. What was he like as a person, first of all? He arrived in Moscow in 2017 to start working for the Moscow Times. And he contacted me and asked me for some Russian contacts from the world of football because um, he was writing a story for the Moscow Times about the preparations for the 2018 World Cup. So I shared some contacts with him and then we met up, I think, for the first time in a kind of Korean-Indian fusion cafe, restaurant, not far from the Kremlin. He was telling me about his growing up in a Russian-speaking household. His parents emigrated from the Soviet Union in the late 1970s. And it was clear like how excited and um, enthusiastic he was to be in Russia and reporting on life in Russia. And that's important, isn't it? He was interested in the life of Russia, not just in the, I guess, the kind of narrow political context which many of us view Russia in. Yeah, I mean, he was interested in everything. I mean, like from football to, to music to obviously Kremlin intrigue and recently the war. And do you think his heritage helped him report on Russia, get into a depth that other people might not be able to? Yeah, I mean, it's quite difficult for some journalists who get sent to Russia by their newspapers or television stations or whatever. And for some of them, it's the first time they've been in Russia. It was also the first time Evan had been, as far as I'm aware, but obviously mm. he wasn't a stranger to the country when people are sometimes sent for them it's like a job whereas you could see for Evan it was like a passion he felt that he was returning to the country of his parents birth and obviously he knows the language and he knows the culture and yeah I think for anyone else who just arrived in Russia and was thrust into the daily reporting it would have been a lot more difficult than it was for Evan for, with his obvious advantages. And what did you make of him as a journalist? By all accounts he seems quite intrepid. He's a great journalist. When the coronavirus pandemic started, he was writing for the Moscow Times, which is an independent news website. And with his colleagues there, he like scooped some major stories on the Kremlin's cover-up of deaths from coronavirus. One story I remember in particular was he spent time with Russian medical students who'd been forced to go to COVID wards with very little training at all and weren't given a choice and they were just sent there. Immediately, it was clear that he was a talent. And then Last year, when he moved to the Wall Street Journal and the full-scale invasion of Ukraine was underway, I guess the job will have become a lot more difficult for him. 
Um, well, like everyone, pretty much, or every Western journalist, and indeed Russian independent journalist, um, fled Moscow, fled Russia in early March when Putin approved a law that made it a criminal offense to report on fake news about the Russian army. So essentially anything that the Russian Ministry of Defense doesn't report. So yeah, I mean, he'd only just started the job at the Wall Street Journal, as far as I know. And obviously he wasn't expecting to be reporting from abroad. But in recent months, some media outlets have started sending journalists back in for reporting trips. I mean, there are very few people living there, Western journalists living there. I mean, just as, you can count them on less than the thing is one hand, I think. What was it like before the war, Mark, over the years that you were there? Because cause the impression from the outside is that it always has seemed like quite an intense place to work from where you're constantly looking over your shoulder wondering what the government in Russia thinks about what you're up to and how they might react. Was that always the way before the war? I started reporting in Russia 2013 as a journalist accredited with the Russian Foreign Ministry, which it's important to say that Evan had accreditation from the Russian Foreign mm. Ministry, so he had permission to travel to these places, which should have protected him, but didn't. In the years before the war, Russian journalists, independent Russian journalists, opposition Russian journalists, or basically Russian journalists who report on the truth, report the truth, they were always much, much bigger risk than Western journalists for a number of reasons. Like A, they were writing in Russian, which obviously the Kremlin was more concerned about than people writing in English, French, whatever. And also, again, we had accreditation, so we were technically protected by the Russian foreign ministry. And it seemed that they didn't really care for many years that much what we wrote. And I remember going into the Russian foreign ministry and just an official telling me that they liked some of my stories, even though they were like t totally critical about Putin, which is just kind of strange. And yeah, in Moscow, you never really felt in the years up to the war that there was any kind of pressure. Um, or that you were being kind of like trailed by the FSB security service or anything. The only exception to that was when, when you would travel outside of Russia to the provinces, to regions where the FSB security agency wasn't so used to seeing foreign journalists. And mm. um, they would get, I guess, ex excited isn't quite the right word, but they sometimes didn't really know how to handle it. And so they would handle it in a ways that maybe their colleagues in Moscow wouldn't do. I mean, I remember once I went to Russia's Black Earth region to report on protests against a nickel mining project that the locals were opposed to. Uh, there had been protests that were kind of verging on breaking out into violence. And I went around and interviewed lots of people. For the people I was talking to at one point we were being filmed. But after I left, the FSB agents went around and interviewed every single person that I'd spoken to, which didn't really happen in Moscow. Moscow is a huge city, and before the war, there were a lot of Western journalists that so would have been kind of almost impossible to keep tracks on us all. Mm. But since the war started, um, the, the surveillance has, has been ramped up. And so that was the situation before the full-scale invasion in Ukraine started. I mean, you've already hinted at this already, but, but how did it change? Was it just a ramping up of all those pressures that you describe, or did it have a more sinister flavour to it? It was early March last year when Putin approved the law making it an offence to, to distribute fake news about the actions of the Russian army, punishable by up to 15 years in prison. Vladimir Putin signed a censorship bill into law, rendering it impossible for news outlets to accurately report the news in Russia. The law made it a crime to spread information deemed false by Russian authorities. Remember, regulators in the country earlier warned Russian media not to call an invasion an invasion, not to call the war a war. So obviously that has an immediate chilling effect. Whereas before, some of my stories, state television would criticize them, for example. I remember having my 
my face flashed on, on state television's current affairs show, being accused of manipulating an interview. Just rubbish. I mean, it was just laughable at the time, you know, but then suddenly there's this law. And before, if they thought your, your reports were Western propaganda, mm. they would maybe scold you on television. But now you're looking at like 15 years in a prison camp, which is obviously an entirely different matter. So yeah. tolerance for critical reporting dropped to, well, as we see now, basically zero. And so how did you respond to that then? Um, I stayed there from early March until late May. And then at times decided it was too dangerous essentially to stay. And I was pulled out of the country. But I'd been there. I mean, there'd only been, most people had left in early March, so there was only a few of us left. And it was quite a nerve-wracking period. I mean, I didn't know if it was my kind of like um, my own overactive imagination. Like, sometimes you would hear like footsteps outside. On, and I mean, you would hear footsteps outside before the war as well. But in this kind of situation, you start to imagine all kind of like terrible things about being arrested. But I still didn't th- really believe that they would arrest a Western journalist, that um, Russia would sees a Western journalist for either fake news or, in Evan's case, espionage. But then again, I didn't believe that Russia would bomb Kiev. And in the meantime, you must have had to temper your reporting. Was that an active consideration? For a while, I started to use a pseudonym, yeah, on stories about, for example, Bucha, Mariupol. Mm. I, used, I just used a pseudonym because I mean, the stories were still getting out there and it didn't really matter if they had my name on them or not. The only thing I would use my real name for was feature stories where I was walking around the streets of Moscow and it was clear that, that it was me. <laughs> so, so then you left. Yeah. How was that actually getting out? Getting out wasn't a problem and they're, they're quite happy to see Russians or foreigners who don't support the war leave, I think. One, one less problem you know, for them, you know what I mean? So when you're on your way out then, figuratively looking back over your shoulder at those who stayed, the journalists I'm thinking about, what did you think about their decision and what they would then be facing? Did you leave with a sense of worry? Did you think they were especially brave? Did you give it much thought? When I left, I think there was me, there was the BBC and Sky were the only media outlets left in the country. That was when I left at the end of May. A few months after that, journalists started to go back in. But at the time when I left, there wasn't really anyone left in the country. Obviously concerned about the BBC and mm. Sky. But then when people started going back in, obviously, yeah, I was concerned about their safety. And um, I was just hoping that something that the kind of thing that's happened to Evan wouldn't happen. That was mm. basically my hope. Coming up, we hear from Emma Tucker, editor-in-chief of The Wall Street Journal, on the efforts to try and get Evan back. That's after this. 
Yeah, I was arrested on Wednesday evening in Yekaterinburg, driven to Moscow, bundled out of an FSB van into a court where the hearing lasted around five minutes when he was remanded in custody until May the 29th and um, sent to Lefortova, which is a notorious detention facility in the east of Moscow. Um, he's being held in isolation. He's not being held in isolation as a punishment. I mean, he's being held there as a kind of quarantine. I think it's a routine measure in Lefortova where you um, they keep prisoners isolated just to check they don't have any contagious diseases or coronavirus mm. or hepatitis or whatever. You say it's notorious. For what reason? Well, it's particularly harsh. Ex-prisoners have described it, the general kind of like atmosphere where you don't really see any other prisoners. And what is the guards make these loud clicking noises with their keys to warn other wardens that they're coming through. It's obviously extremely basic. And just, I mean, when people are jailed in Russia, they're sent to prison camps um, where they're, they're quite often held in barracks or sometimes, and um, there are lots of other people around. I've heard people say that they felt kind of relief when they were finally convicted, sentenced, and allowed to leave Lefortova, which is kind of like austere kind of... The kind of impression I get from people who've been there, that you just feel like completely isolated from the world, even though it's not that far from the center of Moscow, um, yeah. that everything is done to make you feel like you're on your own, that there's no support. That said, I mean, Evan should still be able to receive letters, although they have to be posted from within Russia and written in Russian which I'm obviously for Evan isn't a problem, but um, mm. his friends have set up an email account, free Evan Gorishkovich, which you can use to, to communicate with him. What's the Russian case against him? You mentioned he's been arrested on espionage charges. Is that just a, is that all we know? Uh, or, or is there any detail that they've given beneath that about why they think he's a spy? There's not much detail and it's likely we might not actually even find out many of the details of the case against him since we don't entirely know what they are, apart from the vague mm. kind of allegation that he was um, spying, well, I mean, that kind of ludicrous allegation that he was spying on behalf of the American government and um, snooping around a weapons factory, basically. I think they said the military industrial complex, he was trying to get secrets out of there. The evidence against him is secret, not because it contains any sensitive information because it's non-existent. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, as, as, as one, one, one um, political analyst pointed out, like spying for America or acting on the instructions of the American side, which was how they initially put it, could actually mean that he was on assignment for the Wall Street Journal and um, collecting information about Russia's military industrial complex could just mean talking to analysts, mm. So, which obviously isn't espionage, it's journalism. It's what every single journalist does. And obviously we don't know what's going to happen with Evan going forward. And there hasn't been much of this, as you've said, well, since the end of the Cold War, I think, that a Western journalist was arrested by, by the Russian government. Mm -hmm. For espionage, yeah. Thinking about past experiences about Americans who have been detained in Russia, how have they played out in the past? Well, there are three, basically, recent cases we need to look at here. The first one we should mention, I think, is Paul Whelan. He's a former US Marine. And he was arrested a number of years ago when he was visiting Moscow for a wedding. And he had been friends with a kind of minor FSB agent. He'd visited this guy's house, this guy's parents' house near Moscow on one trip. And then the next time he came, the FSB agent came to see him, said he had some photos from the trip to the house, gave him a flash drive. And then his colleagues burst into the hotel room, pulled the flash drive out of his pocket 
and um, said that it contained state secrets. So Whelan was arrested in 2018, and in 2020 he was sentenced to 16 years in prison. And he's still there. And there was um, Brittany Griner, the um, U.S. basketball star, who was arrested as she was coming into Moscow with a like, tiny amount of cannabis oil that had been in one, in one of her vapes and given a nine-year sentence for that, which, again, was clearly a politically motivated decision and sentence. Brittany Griner was eventually released last year and swapped for um, Victor Boot, who's a notorious Russian arms dealer who was been serving a 25-year sentence in an American jail. We never forgot about Brittany. We've not forgotten about Paul Whelan, who's been unjustly detained in Russia for years. We brought home Trevor Reed when we had a chance. Trevor Reed was another former U.S. Marine who was arrested in Moscow and sentenced to years in prison for allegedly assaulting a Russian police officer on a drunken night out. And he was swapped as well last year for a Russian pilot who'd been serving time in, in an American jail on drug trafficking charges. Mm. So, I mean, there's obviously there's a pattern here of exchanges between Russia and the United States, which have continued even during the war in Ukraine. Evan Gershkovich has now formally been charged with espionage, an allegation his employer, the Wall Street Journal, and the US government vehemently deny. The US has declared that Russia has wrongfully detained Evan, and around the world, fellow journalists and even governments are calling for his release. My name's Emma Tucker, and I'm the editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal. Emma, as things stand, what contact has the journal had with, with Evan? The only contact we've had with Evan is via the lawyers we've appointed in Moscow. It's very minimal contact, but we know from them that he is grateful for all the support that he's been getting, and he's OK. And... In terms of how things play out now, do you have any clarity about what happens now over the next few days and, and weeks? Well, the most significant thing that's happened in the, the past few days has been that the US State Department has designated Evan as unlawfully detained. That's a process that normally takes a very long time. In previous cases, it's taken far longer than the couple of weeks that it took to get in the case of Evan. Why does it matter, right, if the State Department says he's wrongfully detained? This unlocks a whole lot of new resources to try to get him out of Russia after his arrest there on spying allegations at the end of March. Now, this is a recognition by the U.S. that the charges against Evan are totally bogus. It usually takes a lot longer to get the wrongfully detained determination. So we were heartened that it came about so quickly Aside from the fact that it's an official recognition that the government disputes the charges, it unlocks other resources, government resources, and it broadens the scope of the government mm. involvement. It means that they will now assign the US's chief hostage negotiator, a man called Roger Carsons, to, to officially pick up the reins on this, and he will now act, he will spearhead the effort to get Evan back. And how involved is the journal in this, and I guess all the the lobbying power that you can wield as well, I guess mainly on the US government, but also I guess on, on the Russian government as well. We are still very involved. This is obviously now officially a government to government mm. situation, but where we are involved is obviously we're talking very often and we're very close to the, to Evan's family. 
We are also busy making as much noise about this because we don't want the story to slip from the public eye. So our involvement has been to make sure that the story is front of mind, but also to rally the support from around the world, which I have to say has been incredible. I've been overwhelmed by the support we've had from other media organisations, literally from all over the world, South America, Africa, the Far East, Europe. It's been truly heartening. And I think what this is, is that other news organisations feel very strongly about this because obviously there's there's poor Evan at the heart of it, but there's also a precedent here. You know, is this going to be the new norm from rogue regimes that journalists are taken hostage? And it's, you know, the, the Russians themselves haven't taken a journalist since 1986. What we and other news organisations want to, to, to fight against is this idea that th- this is the new norm. I mean, where next? Will journalists get taken in by other rogue regimes and held hostage. I think we feel very strongly that that accredited journalists should be allowed to do their jobs safely wherever they're operating in the world. And we don't want this to be some sort of line that's been crossed. Is there anything which you think people listening could do if people felt so moved that they want to help or do something? Is Is there anything useful that people listening to this now could do? The most useful thing that people can do is keep this story current. Talk about it, go on social media, check in to the journal to see what it is that we're doing, raise it locally. The more we keep Evan in the public eye, genuinely the faster I think we'll get him back. So I think the way people can help is by being really supportive, sending messages of support on social media. And as I say, just keep keep talking about the story and and keep up to date with what's going on. We need to put pressure on the Russians. We need to put pressure on their allies. And we need to uphold the integrity of free media around the world. It really matters. We don't want this to be some sort of horrible new thing that starts happening. Mark, in terms of what the Russian government wants out of this, namely less independent reporting about what it's doing within Russia, do you think the chilling effect will work following Evan's arrest and whatever happens to him next, that that actually there will be less honest, frank reporting about what is happening in Russia and even how the war is going down amongst people in Russia? Well, I mean, it's pretty clear right now that there aren't going to be any more American journalists in Russia for the foreseeable period. I know the Wall Street Journal pulled out its bureau chief who'd been there for years. I know other American journalists who have been going in and out Obviously, won't be doing that anymore now. So, yeah, reports from Russia are going to become increasingly rare. We're basically going to get to a situation like, I mean, on the street, on the ground reporting within Russia right now, there's a danger it could become as rare as, as journalism from Iran, perhaps even from North Korea in a year or two. You know, so, um, I don't obviously like Russia being this kind of like information black hole. Mm. doesn't really help anyone at all. We're talking about the world's biggest nuclear power here. So it would be helpful to know what's going on in the country. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Luke Jones, and my guests, The Times foreign correspondent Mark Bennett and the editor-in-chief of The Wall Street Journal, Emma Tucker. You can read all of Evan Gerskovich's work on the Wall Street Journal website, which has lifted its paywall on his reporting. The producer today was Priyanka Deladia with production support from Edward Drummond. The executive producers are Kate Ford and James Shield, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. 
If you'd like to share your thoughts on what you've just heard, maybe you have a suggestion on something else we should be covering, let us know. Stories of our times at thetimes.co.uk is our email. See you soon. <laughs>